0: Thank you for listening to the FBH Podcast. For more information about our church, feel free to visit www.fbhanford.org. Morning, church. How we doing? How is everybody? Woo! Good. Hey, for joining us online, we're glad you're with us as well. Uh, my name is Peter Anderson. I'm the senior pastor here at FBH, and we're just uh, excited to have you along. We're in First Peter 3, and so if you have your Bibles, uh, physical or digital, feel free to flip open to First Peter 3. We're going to Go through verses thirteen to seventeen today, um, and we've been we've been kind of walking through First uh, Peter, and we're doing a chapter a week. And as I said last week, we really don't have enough time to get through the breadth of all of First Peter of every single chapter. Um, and so we've been kind of weaving this theme of identity through uh, through First Peter. As it's, we're not weaving it, it is there, and we are walking through this theme. Of identity, and so I just want to make you aware. The first twelve verses of First Peter three we have preached on recently. Uh, we have talked about the idea of mutual submission, husband and wife, and all of that stuff. And so we're going to kind of leave that behind. Very important. Um, all of it is very important. And if you want to stick with us as we are reading through it to get the entire breadth of First Peter, read a chapter a week until we get to Easter. So this week you should be reading uh, chapter chapter four. So last we go to chapter chapter three. you got chapter five. Um, at the end, and then we're coming straight up into Easter on the seventeenth. It's going to be at ten thirty this time, out over here on the lawn. It's going to be a uh, a great morning. But uh, we are uh, we're gonna we're gonna move in. We're gonna jump in here to to First Peter, uh, verse three. And so a couple things we want to remember is Peter is talking to a very specific audience here. Peter is talking to. Christians living in Asia Minor in the uh, early 60s A.D., not like 1960s, but like 60s A.D. Um, and so in these first couple of decades after Jesus walked the earth, these are churches and these are households uh, of faith that they really are the very first seeds of church planted in kind of hostile ground ground that these places that had real no context for the gospel, all of this was going to be new to them. The culture is foreign to that. And it hasn't been shaped by the gospel yet, right? If you were to look at our culture for the most part, a lot of the way that our culture has been shaped, the gospel has been a part of it. And at least at one point in time, most, most people agree now, sociologists agree that we are living in a post-Christian nation now. However, our roots of that, a lot of them were indeed shaped by the gospel. And so here, though, the seeds are barely taking root. They are barely putting out kind of their, their first shoots of faith. And it's a time where the believers probably would have felt incredibly vulnerable. And so Peter t- starts, starts talking here. It's in uh, 1 Peter 3, verses 13 through 17. We're going to read through the whole thing. And then we're going to kind of backtrack and go through it, okay. So it will be on the screen. It says, who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats, do not be frightened. But if in your heart but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. I don't usually drink tea on stage. My allergies are getting the best of me, so I'm not sorry. Okay, so we're going to break this down in the, in, the, in the next couple of minutes. But, but what we need to get back to the question of and, and largely what this entire thing kind of revolves around is why why is it that you have a hope? And Peter is calling these people in in first century Asia Minor to, hey, you need to be able to explain why it is that you believe what it is that you believe. And so I think that, that in turn, we need to ask that question of ourselves this morning. We need to ask ourselves the question, why is it that you believe what it is that you believe. And I'm, regardless of your worldview, religious, political, whatever, why is it that you believe what you believe? I'd say the majority of, of the people in here are Christians this morning. So Christians, why is it that you believe what it is that you believe? Maybe you're an atheist here this morning. Why is it that you believe what you believe? Right? Maybe you're Mormon or Muslim or whatever. Why is it that you believe what you believe? I think we have to come to terms with that regardless of your worldview, Christian or otherwise. Because if you don't have a why for what it is that you believe, you are going to lose credibility in the eyes of people that you're having conversations with. That's just the reality of the situations. So verse 15, it says that we better be able to answer the question of why. More specifically, it says be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. So I want to take a second, and I just want to sit in that. I want you to sit in that and and answer that question in your head. Why is it that you believe what it is that you believe? And if you don't have a response to that, we need to get to one. This is actually an issue I ran across when I was going to Chico State. And I had a whole lot of people who, who, man, I just felt like I was getting in arguments left and right with people regarding my faith. And I could explain the what I believed. I could explain all of these different things about what it is I believe, but then they would ask a very simple question to me. Well, why do you believe that? And I had no way to stand on that afterwards. I had no way to explain my why because no longer was it good enough to say that, well, I grew up going to church or this is what my mom and dad believed. Right? Or even the, the worst possible answer, I don't know. Like none of those things lended credibility to what it is that I believed and who it is that I was, right? My identity, as we've been talking about. So if I'm saying, hey, my identity needs to be shaped by Jesus, we've talked about the last couple of weeks, then I better understand why it is that I believe that my identity should be shaped that way. I wasn't prepared to give an answer as to why it is that I believed what I did, and it hurt. That ability, my ability to communicate with others regarding the gospel. It made not only my argument incredibly weak, it also made their trust in me wane. And once you lose trust, it is difficult to talk about the gospel with anyone with any sort of authority. And so I hadn't yet answered that question for myself. So today I want you to consistently go back to why. Why, why, why? Why is it that I have a hope in Jesus if you're a Christian? Or if you're not a Christian, why is it that you believe what it is that you do? And and, and to be fair, defending the gospel and having that answer of why can be difficult. Even if you've internalized it, right, even if you have that answer in your head right now, speaking it becomes a whole lot more difficult. There's like speed bumps coming out of your mouth as you say those things, right? Like it's incredibly difficult and it can be challenging. Like 40 years ago... It was an an impolite to talk about anything regarding religion or politics, right? Maybe even 30 years ago that may have been true. But now it seems like it's it's the cool thing to do, to just simply talk about religion and politics, especially if you're on social media. And I use that word talk very loosely, right? It's usually argue, and if someone puts caps lock on, you know you're in for it, right? Like, so, so we need to come to the why because we need to be able to defend our faith. So how is it that you and I need to make sure that we are both not intimidated by the notion of defending what we believe, but also we have an answer to why? And Peter's going to talk through both of these things. So as you think through it is what you believe merely a familial construct, right? Mom or dad or grandma or grandpa, they dragged you to church Every Sunday, as Dave Fox loves to say, I had a drug problem. I got drugged to church every Sunday, right? Like, like it, So if that's the case, that's fine. Maybe it is a familial construct. And that's not necessarily a bad thing right? My kids also have a drug problem. Don't take that out of context, okay? They also get drugged to church every single Sunday. And my hope is that being part, being a part of the community, being a part of the community of believers helps them understand and learn truth. So in turn, they will have an answer for why, Especially if you're younger in here, maybe high school age or or going into college or college or postgraduate whatever. This question alone is going to be paramount to you holding on to your faith when you leave home. Understanding why it is you believe what you do. The what, yeah, important. But the why, if you don't have that answer nailed down, you're going to have a difficult time remaining in your faith that you currently have as you lead or leave the nest. So we are going to get into some of these things as we, as we kind of look back into our passage today. Because knowing why seems to be paramount to our faith remaining steadfast and our ability to communicate the gospel being clear. So let's go back to 13. It says this. It says, who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? Instead of eager, some translations use the word Zealous. It's a more fun word, it's a, it's a little bit of a, a brighter word. And so Peter here refers back to this kind of pattern that we've been tracing for the last two weeks. The suffering, right, enduring, people don't like you because you're a Christian, people are going to persecute you because you're a Christian, whatever it may be. And subsequent, glory of Christ because of how we have handled that persecution, because of how we have lived our life. That's, that's the pattern Death to self, resurrection with God, right, over and over and over again. And what we see is if that the, the gospel is true and we belong to God through Jesus, then safety doesn't really lie in hedging our bets. Safety doesn't lie in us just trying to protect ourselves. Actually, the opposite is true. Safety lies in zealously throwing ourselves into giving away all of us, all of ourselves for the sake of Jesus, so Peter is saying, hey, be zealous to obey God, even if it means you look very weird to others in doing so. That, I mean, especially for our context, no one in America is dying because of their religious views. Okay? And if they are, it's very, very rare. And it's not systemic. It's nothing like that. Okay, so, so for us, really it is, hey, love God, be zealous, and if, even if it means you look weird to others in doing so, be zealous to love God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, even if it means persecution. That's so what Peter is saying, because when it goes back to these verses that say, hey, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your mind, with all your soul, like all th- those verses, it doesn't say when to do that, which means when is it, all of the time. It doesn't say, hey, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength when you feel comfortable. It doesn't say love your neighbor when they seem happy that day, right? It doesn't say any of those things. It simply says you need to do this. And so Peter is reminding these people in the midst of trial, you need to do zealously good for God, even if The direct result of your obedience to Jesus is opposition, hatred, reviling, persecution. Obedience to Jesus is the better option. Why? Because even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. That's what the scripture tells us. Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. And I'm not saying that if you get persecuted and you suffer like, man, you're going to show up and get a million-dollar check tomorrow in your mailbox Okay. Most often, your blessing isn't going to look like that, but if it does happen, just remember to submit your tithe, you know what I'm saying? So But that's not what that blessing looks like. most often. Okay, this guarantee of blessing isn't something Peter even came up with either. This idea of like if you get persecuted, you are going to be blessed. This is actually Jesus' promise to his followers in the Sermon on the Mountain, Matthew chapter 5. It's verses 10 through 12. It will be up on the screen. It says, blessed are those who are pe- persecuted because of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So here's a question for us, FBH. Here's a question. Are you zealous for what is good? Are you zealous for what is good? Do you view yourself and your purpose biblically? What I mean is, do you view yourself as being for something? And I think this is an interesting question that we need to continue to ponder. Is because so often, I think what happens is we come into the faith, like we pray a little prayer, and we feel like we got our, our golden ticket into heaven. Right? And we're like, hey, you know what? I'm done. Yep, I'm a Christian. I'm going to heaven when I die. You know, done. But I think oftentimes we forget, especially those of us who are more mature Christians, more established Christians... I think we forget that we are supposed to be living for something. Our identity, the things that we do needs to flow out of that identity because we are for something of utmost importance. It's not just a get-out-of-jail-free card. And so that's what we need to be aware of. Are we zealously doing good for Christ? When Jesus redeemed you, he bought you, he saved you, he renewed you, he forgave you in order to make you something, to use you. For his, like to be his possession, his instrument, and I know that feels a little strange, right? Like, oh yeah, Christ bought you so then He could use you. Is it strange, or is that how every single transaction that any of us ever have goes? Even this morning, uh, we, we get together and we pray um, with a lot of our productions team, our musicians. Uh, the pastors are in there. Sometimes there's some usher and greeters. We get together, and we pray for the morning. We talk about the flow of the morning, who's handing out free sparkling water in the back. And dudes, I feel you. I tried to get a sparkling water on Thursday and they shut it down real fast. And they were like, no, you can't have one. These are for ladies only. So sorry, guys. Wait for leftovers. That's the trick. Okay. Anyway. So we, like, we get together and we pray every morning. And Kyle, as he was praying for the morning, um, he just said, God, like let us be your instruments this morning. That it wouldn't, be, it wouldn't be us from stage that people are impressed by. It wouldn't be the music that people are impressed by. It wouldn't be how friendly Pastor Jeff is that they would be impressed by. Or the fact that you got uh, fizzy water in the back that they would be impressed by. It would simply be you using us to communicate your gospel to other people. Use us as your instruments. To be, be, to be zealous for what is good means to aim for your life directly at bold and risky obedience to Jesus. Well, how do we do that? Well, I said the first thing is is that we need to be in the word of God to see what good looks like. And that's paramount. So many people, what is God's will for my life? How do I do good for God? Well, have you started by reading like that fat instruction manual that came with saying yes to Jesus? Like if you haven't read all of it, like finish it. And then if you, if you have read all of it, well, the good news is I guarantee you skim some stuff over in the book of Numbers, right? So go back and check out the book of Numbers again. But read through, like what does the Bible say about doing zealously good and to lean into that and to live in such a way as to make it look like we are betting everything, hear me, to make it look like we are betting everything on the reality of the resurrection, And we get to celebrate that in a couple weeks, right? Easter time. Yeah, we're coming out. All you guys are going to wear tons of like pastel colors and we're going to eat cinnamon rolls and no one knows anymore why we wear pastel colors. It's just what you're supposed to do. Your kids are going to look good for like 15 minutes and then they're going to come in here and run around and get all sweaty. So make sure you take your pictures at our photo booth beforehand. But we come and we celebrate this and there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who come and we're like, yes, Jesus rose from the dead. And then we turn around immediately afterwards and we don't live like every... Everything that we do depends on the resurrection of Christ. I don't get it. I mean, that's what Peter is saying here. And so could I or somebody else, like I don't need to be nosy, look at your life and say there is a man. That person is a man who is betting everything, his entire life on the truth of the gospel. Or are we hedging our bets and getting that get-out-of-jail-free card and calling it a day? God promises us that he will bless us when we suffer for his his sake. And so do you truly believe that 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 promise is still good today? That God wants to bless his people, even though oftentimes it's not in the same way that we would hope. And what happens is is that when, when people of God zealously pursue God in every corner of their lives is that the kingdom advances. We talked about this last week, how the way that you live impacts kingdom growth. And so Peter is going to echo this a little bit. But the problem is, it's oftentimes persecution or opposition kind of gets in the way and we we cower away. We get a little bit scared of what it is that we feel like we're supposed to do. And so he starts talking about it in verses 14 and 15 where he says, but even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. He says, don't live in fear of those who oppose Christ, but live in in holy fear of God, honoring Jesus as Lord. And so what we have here is Peter assuming that if you do Christianity correctly, you should need to hear this as an encouragement. That this should not be something that's like, oh yeah, I've never thought about before. No, this is something that you should have to hear to be able to endure and walk through. If you're obeying Jesus, zealous for good, you should expect to be hated, you should expect to suffer, you should need the encouragement of these verses. And we will know we're we're going the right way when maybe we look a little bit strange. Maybe we look a little bit peculiar, peculiar when people kind of raise their eyebrows at us, when people oppose us, when people want us to fail want us to, to get, out of, get out of their culture, to stop troubling their world and kind of stirring up their own realities. And the f- issue of fear is a massive one in Scripture. And it's kind of a law of the universe that you are going to be scared of something. What this is telling us is choose whom you will fear. not Do not fear anything, but choose who it is that you're going to fear. Let's take a deep breath because I've been yelling at you guys for a little bit. So... I want you to turn to the person you came with or write it in your notes if you came by yourself. What is it that you are scared of? Maybe it's when you were younger. Maybe it's when you were older. It could be a completely and totally irrational fear. But go ahead, do that real quick. What were you afraid of? This is the part where you talk in church. Go ahead. Oh, you want to know what I was afraid of? Thanks for asking. Okay. So when I was four, five, or six, somewhere in there, terrified of clowns. Anybody else? Okay. Clowns, any sort of mascot, okay, anything where someone was trying to hide their identity if we're trying to get philosophical on this whole thing, okay, terrified of them. Like irrationally terrified. And it wasn't because I saw the movie It, it wasn't because I had a bad experience with with clowns. Like all I know is that if I saw somebody with a smile painted on their face, as someone told me earlier, trying to conceal their identity, not okay, okay. Okay. absolutely terrifying. As a matter of fact, I was so scared that I think I was four or five, and my cousin Brett, whom I love, decided that he was going to be a clown for Halloween. Thanks, Brett. Only a year older, and as a matter of fact, we even got ready together. Like, we got into our costumes together, and it was like a switch got flipped. He came out with paint on his face and a wig and a, and a clown costume. I was like, I'm out. I'm done. Like, not happening. Right? So like fear is is part of that, like, like part of our lives. This idea of fear. And so the the, the reality is, is those those kind of irrational fears and all of those things that don't make sense. Yeah, fear. But now as adults, what do we fear most? Fear of security, fear, fear of failure, fear of letting someone else. And then the big one that scripture talks about is this idea of fear of man. Being a being a people pleaser. Right? And if I'm being honest, my guess is is that if I if I took a statistical analysis of pastors, my guess is 99% of those pastors would be people pleasers, have fear of man, and the other 1% are jerks. That's uh, just my assumption. Right? Because you have like this pastoral heart, you don't want you don't want people to be upset with you, you don't want people to feel like you let them down in any way. You want to care for them, you want to shepherd them is what scripture talks about on a regular basis. And so one of the things that I have had to do is, is consistently go back to, to my favorite verse, one of my favorite verses in Galatians 1:10. And it says, it says, Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, hear this, I would not be a servant of Christ. That's tough because now our identity has changed based on where our fear lies. So we've talked for the course of the last couple of weeks about our identity, Christ, our identity is found in Christ, our identity is found in Christ, our identity is found in Christ. And now all of a sudden this says if you still fear people more than you fear God, that I would not be a servant of Christ. Do you fear people more than God? Because I think we've lost part of that in our Western American church. Because for so long we have described God is love, right? So often it's God is love. And that's great because God is love and Jesus is love. And God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son so so that we wouldn't perish but we would have eternal life, right? Like that is what... The most famous passage, John 3.16 says about God, that God is love. But there's other parts of the Bible that talks about not only is God 100% love, but God is also 100% just. God is also 100% wrath. God is all of these other things. God is perfect and holy and set apart and awesome and terrifying. Old Testament talks a lot about that. Even New Testament talks about how perfect he is. And I think we've lost some of this reverence for God, so much so that we now fear man more than we fear a holy and perfect and just and wrathful and loving God. And so we need to be aware of that. So are you terrified? Do you fear people more than you fear God? Here's a question for you. Are you scared to share your faith? And if you are, if the answer to that question is yes, and it's okay to be nervous, but if that would stop you from sharing your faith because you are more afraid of what someone would think about you than you would be if that person did not know Jesus and ended up going to hell forever and you having to take an account for that, when you get to heaven with a holy, just, and perfect God, something's off. You now fear man more than you fear God. So are you ashamed to publicly be known to believe certain unfashionable parts of the Bible? And I get nervous about that. I have to come up here and talk about what the Bible says about homosexuality. I have to come up here and talk about what the Bible says about sexual sin. Like I have to talk about all of these different things that not only am I slightly uncomfortable with, but I know it's countercultural. And so because that, I just got to say, hey, I'm going to be honest and and I believe what I believe because it's written in the infallible word of God. And so I'm going to stand on that and I'm going to move forward. And it's scary and it's nervous. And so the Christians in Asia Minor had massive worldview gaps between themselves and their neighbors. Gaps that were resulting in persecution. Gaps that were resulting in suffering. But they knew they couldn't love their neighbor if they feared their neighbor more than God. And so it's this whole idea of like how the the definition of love has changed. Right, love, in order to love somebody now in our culture, in our society, not in the church, but in our culture, means you have to accept everything that they bring to the table. You have to accept their worldview as legitimate. You have to respect all of it, or you have to, you have to, not respect, you have to accept everything that they believe. You can't argue with them about any of those things or else you're being hateful and unloving, right? I actually think that that is the opposite of love, being accepting of everything. I think you can respect those things but accepting those things are different. And I've talked about this from the stage before, but it's the, uh, different, the difference between being nice and being kind. Like being nice to somebody is when somebody has a piece of spinach in their teeth and you don't want to upset them so you don't say anything about the piece of spinach. Is that really loving? No, you just made yourself feel better, right? Like you didn't want to rock the boat. So you're like, you know what? You keep that spinach in your teeth. Someone else will handle it down the road. Being kind and I would argue being loving is being kind enough to share the truth with that person regardless of how it makes you feel because ultimately it's going to be better for that person in the long run even though it may feel you, make you feel comfortable in the short. And that's our goal. We want to love people to the best of our ability. And what Peter has them believe and to have us believe is that God is good for his promises, that fearing people will never work out the way that, that fearing God and trusting God will work out. And so the result of, of living out this fearless lives and honoring Christ will be that people are going to ask you a particular kind of question, which is what we start with, started with in verses 14 to 16. But even if you should suffer for what is right, you're blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have But do this with gentleness and respect. Just remember that portion we're going to get to in a second. Keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Why? Why do you believe what you believe? Why do you have the hope that you have? But let's take a second and look at how it is that we're supposed to respond. Not just, why, not just with the answer, but how it is that you give that answer. Talking about the idea of gentleness and that idea of respect and keeping a clear conscience. Because this says you need to have all of those things in order to articulate hope. And there are far too many pastors and far too many preachers who have forgotten this. So if you find yourself, and you're here, and you won't hear this from me, but if you find yourself under the teaching of a pastor who is consistently calling people with opposing worldviews dumb or sheep or fearful because of their political views or views on masking or whatever the issue happens to be this week, you need to be aware that that person is being divisive and he is not accurately articulating the gospel he may be articulating the, the what of the gospel, but he is not exemplifying the heart behind the gospel with gentleness and respect. So Christians, if you find yourself in a conversation with someone with an opposing worldview of you, uh, of you gentleness and respect, not arguments and harsh words, ultimately it's going to be divisive and not win anybody to Christ in the, in the long run. This is what Peter talks about right here. He says, so even when they're malicious towards you, even when they insult you, even when they call you dumb or weird or whatever, you treat them with gentleness and respect and with a clear conscience. Jesus didn't sacrifice truth, but he was gentle and respectful. And yeah, there's that one time that these type of preachers like to preach about Jesus overturning the temples, and that was because of the fact that they were, they were being disobedient to God in God's house and making, idol, uh, making idols and money off of God's house. There's that one instance, but every other time we see Jesus have conversations, it's out of gentleness and respect. So church, as we are talking through this gentleness and respect and if you find yourself under a teaching of a pastor like that, be aware it's divisive and dangerous and what they are doing is not brave, it's self-gratifying. And it's disgusting. It's the idea of a bully pulpit. You can come up here and you can just shout at people and say anything that you want to say. It is unhealthy and it is not good. Okay, soapbox down. We need to though. Be ready. To defend the hope that is producing in you a life that looks foolish to everyone else around you. This is called gospel folly is actually the words that are, uh, are put in a place by it. So our job is to be ready to defend the gospel when people think you're dumb for believing the gospel. In Paul's writings, he actually talks about the idea that the Jews are going to be offended by the cross and the Gentiles are not going to understand it. So if you're new to church, there's two types of people in the world. There's Jews and Gentiles. If you're not a Jew, guess what? You're a Gentile. Okay? And so he says, hey, the Jews are going to be upset about this because they don't believe in the resurrection of Christ. They don't believe he was the Messiah. They wanted a different Messiah. The Gentiles, though, they're just not going to understand it because they've never heard of it before. So they're going to think you're kind of silly. They're going to think you're kind of dumb. And so that's this idea of gospel folly. So our job is to be ready to defend that gospel folly. The world is going to look at you doing and saying things that don't make sense to them. And they're going to ask you, what on earth are you doing? Stop it. Protect yourself. And that's what this text is about. Unfortunately, there's a um, a common but wrong idea about this text. That it's saying that Christians walk around with some kind of magical glow on their face. Right? Like, you're glowing. I'm not pregnant. I promise. Right? That's That's not... The case, if your hope in God is enough, people think that, you know, people are going to walk up to you and say, wow, you look like an angelic being. Your face is just radiant with righteous hope. Which, by the way, has never happened to me. But that being said, that's not what this is talking about. In the context of this passage, which is non-Christians persecuting Christians for looking like Christians. That's what happened. When Peter is saying that you are going to have to defend the hope in you. That makes, you look like, that makes you look like folly to the world around you. The interesting thing is that folly that they see is actually the very wisdom of God. Because as you read through scripture, everything is upside down. The first is last. The king came to serve the servant. The last will be first. And on and on and on it goes. It's about people looking at you and saying, Jesus. And only an idiot would do that with all of their time. You're telling me that you're going to give a couple hours to church on Sunday. You're telling me you're going to give a couple hours to church on Wednesday. Like you meet on a small group, you serve as well. Like why would you do that? What about all of your kids' extracurricular activities? Aren't you concerned they're not going to be the best at sports in high school? Nope, I'm not. Aren't you concerned though? Like what about when, the, the, when, when football is on on Sunday? Like how, you're, you're going to miss the football game? Nah, I'm probably not going to miss it. Besides, I can, you know, record it. But, but, but that's absolutely ridiculous for you to spend that much amount of time. Or, or hold on, you're telling me that you actually give 10% of your income to a, to a church? Like, like you do that once a year? Like, no, I do that every single month. Like, right? that's crazy. That's more than a gym membership. And then you can say, but and that's why I'm out of shape. Okay? So just remember that as you're having that conversation. But it's folly to the world, it doesn't make sense. To the world, even when they say things like only an idiot would shape their lives around this old book that a whole bunch of people just wrote this different mythology and someone put it all together and they were accurately able to put together a stream of consciousness from Genesis through Revelation that accurately talks about Jesus Christ the Messiah the entire time. It's mythological. Throw it out. It's folly to the world. But it's the very wisdom of God. And so when the body of Christ lives with zeal, for good works, obedience to Jesus, it simply looks weird. And it's a display of the gospel though like in skin. And God through his people is making a display of the gospel, that life that comes from Jesus Christ alone. And so life and joy and fruit come from Christians taking up their cross daily to follow him and live like Christians. You know, at the, the very end of the day, that's all I'm talking about this morning, right? And I can get mad and angry and shout and whatever, do all of those things. But at the end of the day, all I'm really saying is, hey, Christian, live like you're a Christian. Like that's the extent of my message. Some of you are going to like, oh, that's it? Cool, I'm out. But then he finishes with Why? Because the kingdom depends on us living in such a way. Peter lastly warns here to avoid destroying your witness with evil in 1 Peter 3.17. It says, for it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Live in such a way that even if your enemies could watch you around the clock, that they would be put to shame when they accuse you of evil. And that's what we talked about last week as well. Well, then the question is, what is evil? I think there's two types of evil. There's sin. And sin would be anything contrary to the will of God, right? Anything the Bible tells you not to do, don't do it. If it's the will of God for you to not do something, don't do it. But I don't think that's the type of evil that the church is dealing with mostly. Right now in the Western church. I think the type of evil that the church is dealing with mostly is when the church is supposed to do something but doesn't. Which is also sin. That's hard because especially as a lot of us in here are more mature Christians, we've been around forever, we understand what it means to walk with Jesus. My guess is the list of things that you're supposed to do, but don't, is actually a whole lot longer than that list of things that you shouldn't be doing, but do. It's like for the most part, hey man, I've I've gotten rid I don't cuss anymore. Or if I cuss, it's only at work around other people who cuss. Okay. Or I'm I'm really nice to my wife. And I only lie when she asks me if this makes my butt look big, right? Like that's the only time, right? But I've got it under control. I've got those bad things under control. But church, we need to be aware of this other side of things, where where we are supposed to do good in the world. We're supposed to live zealously in the world. We're supposed to serve the world. We're supposed to love God. We're supposed to love people. We're supposed to serve the world. And we just don't. That's just as evil. That's just as bad. So let me, land, let me land with a picture of this in action from the book of Acts. And we'll, we'll wrap up here. So the book of Acts, we're going to be in Acts 17, so if you want to go there, you can. But the book of Acts records the work of the apostles bringing the good news of the gospel to the entirety of the known world at that time, the Roman Empire. Okay? And so that's really what it, it is talking about. And the pattern that Peter talks about, the arc of, of God's work in the church and kind of that place and. And that time. So, as the gospel went into new towns, the gospel went into new cities, the gospel went into new regions, and it started to take root, we actually have moments where we see non believers' reaction to what we're talking about this morning. So, it's verses one through nine. It says this Now, when Paul and Silas had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. Where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. So, long story short, Paul's going into a bunch of different synagogues at the time, three weeks in a row. He preaches the gospel, preaches Christ and Christ crucified. It continues. And some of them And Jason has received him. And they're acting against all the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city and authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest and they let them go. Even if all of the Christians at the time didn't get it, the non-Christians did. They said, these guys are talking about another king. These guys are talking about listening to and acting out of a different identity. No longer Roman citizens, but citizens of heaven. And they have upset this entire country. They've upset the entire world. And now they've come here into our city. And can you believe it? They're going to act like Christians here. That's what Paul was talking about or, or that's, what, that's what happens here as Luke is writing about this. The non-Christians got it. They understood what was being claimed by the Christians. They understood that they weren't heralding a new system of good works or a tweaked philosophy of morality or a nice religious ideology. They understood that the gospel, the good news of Jesus was a claim to everything. Every single thing. It was nothing less than the claiming of their city as a new era under the kingship of Jesus Christ. That's what they heard. These men have turned the world upside down, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Like we said last week, and I'll land with this, we need to remember that we are a royal priesthood, as it says in 1 Peter 2. We're a chosen People. We serve the same king that these people serve. We have the same good news to talk about the king forgiving all sins by his own blood. So the question then becomes what is stopping you? And my answer would probably be is because you don't know your why yet. You know the what, but you don't know the why. And it won't be until you can answer that question why I believe what I believe, that you are willing to step out in faith, that you are willing to fear God more than man, that you are willing to share about Jesus, who is the new king of the world. And until then, we're going to be scared. And our Lord has told us, have no fear of man. Do not be troubled. And the gospel and those people in your world depend on it. They depend on you not fearing man. We talk about oikos all the time. There's people in your world that need to know who Jesus is and it's up to you to share it. Are you doing that? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for passages like this. Difficult passages where it's not so much, hey, you need to understand more things or we need to understand more theology. But we simply need to get up and move. And Father, I know it came off as an exhortation this morning. And so I'm sorry for that. But Lord, I pray that we would, there would be expediency in our actions because of your word. That we would recognize that there are people who need to know you and we need to stop cowering as a church and recognize that we simply need to live how Christians are called to live. And so for those this morning with heads still bowed and eyes still closed, if maybe you're saying, I've, I said yes to Jesus a long time ago, but man, I'm, just, I'm not living like it. I'm not living like a Christian. So if that's you, and you can pray along with me in just a second, and re-up, get good with God. Say, God, I'm going to dedicate my life to you. I want to make sure I'm living in the same way that I agreed to in the first place. But there's another group of people in here, those who have not yet said yes to Jesus. And if that's you, and the idea of living authentically and having an identity that's grounded in Christ, living for something that is bigger than you, for a holy God who sent his son to save you forever so you can live for him throughout eternity. If that's you this morning, you can pray along as well. Simply repeat after me, say, Father A, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, that I sin every single day, and I'm sorry for that. But B, I believe that you sent your son to die on a cross for me. And C, I would choose to follow you every single day. And that looks like acting like a Christian is supposed to act. So we love you, Father. It's in your son's name we pray, amen.